Greetings, Redemption Arcadia. My name is Frank Switzer. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. Uh, things are quite different and have been for, for quite a while, but I want to remind you that as the church, we may not be gathering, but we have never closed. In fact, I found that we've been as busy or busier in many ways uh, since the shelter in place and the pandemic has gotten started. So while the church has never closed, we, we haven't been gathering and we have been missing you and we, and we can't wait to get back to that. Uh, but since the church is still open, we're still doing the work of the church. Um, it's, it's just good to remind you that Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations throughout Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, I'm here today to let you know that we're excited that we're trying to move forward now with plans not to reopen, but to regather. And if you would mark your calendar, we believe that those regathering events are gonna start on Sunday, June 14th. Now, you need to hold this loosely because as with everything during this crisis, uh, things have been changing uh, every day. Things are very fluid. But uh, we believe that we're in a position now where we can talk about starting to, to regather uh, the church. And we'll be doing that, so mark your calendars, June 14th, that's Sunday. And we'll even start doing some midweek uh, gatherings at that time as well. Uh, now, we're going to be regathering under some very strict protocols that will um, make sure that we are safe and that we are clean and we are sanitized. And so we would also ask you for your patience during this time uh, that we start to regather. Uh, the, 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 the events will be a little bit smaller than normal. Uh, we'll, we're going to have some caps. Um, they're going to be a little bit shorter than normal. They're not going to be quite what you are used to on Sunday morning. Eventually, we're going to get there. But in the interim, during this phased regathering approach, we're going to have quite a few protocols that we're going to ask you to be patient with and follow so that we can start getting together. I miss singing with people. I miss being able to worship with people. And that's one of the reasons why we're excited to start regathering. I do want to point you to two things in that regard. First of all, on our website, there is a six-minute video from the lead pastor over all of Redemption Church, Tyler Johnson, and he talks in a little bit more depth about how we're going to start regathering, how each congregation may look a little bit different as we start to regather, and the fact that we are submitting ourselves to all of the uh, government and the CDC uh, guidelines, and in fact, probably doing more than the government and the CDC would, would ask us to do. We're gonna be very cautious, but he has a wonderful six-minute video that's very helpful in that regard. Uh, the other thing I would point you to is our website to keep looking for various announcements and blogs and explanations for what we will be doing as we begin uh, to regather. And as always, if you have any questions or you, you're desiring to get connected uh, with Redemption Church Arcadia, you can contact us through email at arcadia at redemptionaz.com. That's arcadia at redemptionaz.com. And one of us will get back to you. It'll be either be one of the pastors or it'll be uh, Stephanie Shoemate or, or Allison DeSarafino. We'll get back to you. So uh, with that in mind, we're very excited about the possibilities coming forward, but now we need to worship uh, together. So let's do that. From the love of my own God 
Now, now. 
A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. Jehová es mi pastor, nada me faltará. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Me pastoreará. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. No temeré mal alguno. I will fear no evil. 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 Porque tú estarás conmigo. For you are with me. You are with me. For you are with me. With me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Me seguirán todos los días de mi vida. Todos los días de mi vida. And I shall dwell. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Por largos días. Por largos días. Forever. This, this is, is the word of the Lord. This, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Redemption Arcadia, it's great to be with you again on this Sunday. We are starting a brand new series today. We're going to do five weeks in Psalm 23. And... As usual with almost any series that we start, I, I want to start with a little introductory material. So the first question I would ask is, if we're going to do Psalm 23, what is a psalm? There are 150 psalms in the Bible. So what is a psalm? And I want to do this a little bit different. I'm going to talk about what is a psalm from an autobiographical standpoint, not necessarily an academic uh, standpoint. So for me... Early in my walk with Christ, which I came to Christ when I was 28 years old, uh, early in my walk with Christ, the Psalms were very confusing to me. Uh, what I heard and read and learned early in my walk with Christ, so we're talking late 20s, early 30s, is that Psalms were songs that were mostly sung in community, and they were prayers, and these prayers were both individual and communal. So a psalm is a song and a prayer. And then I would read one or two of these psalms, and there was a tremendous disconnect for me, maybe for you too. Uh, first of all, I, admittedly, I have a limited and unsophisticated understanding of music. So I just could not see how these psalms were any sort of a song that I wanted to sing. Uh, the lyrics were nothing like anything I had ever read before. 
And, and I couldn't understand the, the rhythm or the beat. I kind of felt like a confused Dick Clark on American Bandstand when I would look at them that way. Of course, later on, as I was in church more and more and started reading scripture more and more, I began to realize that some of my favorite praise and worship songs were simply words to a song. Uh, one of those early ones was this one. Maybe you remember it. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You remember that praise song? I love that praise song, Psalm 42. So songs, and then second, prayers. <laughs> prayers, really, prayers. Now that was a total disconnect for me for a while. It made me not even want to read the Psalms. Because I, first of all, I... I I did not understand why somebody would write down a prayer in the first place. Was it arrogance? Were there memory issues? Weren't prayers supposed to be spontaneous? I also certainly did not understand at least half of what these prayers were even talking about. So that didn't connect. And why would I pray someone else's prayer, especially somebody who lived thousands of years ago? That was the most disconnected thing that I felt about the Psalms, was that they were prayers. But I'm really glad that I kept at it, that I kept reading them, I kept going back to them, I kept trying to understand them, I kept trying to uh, study them. And then eventually I would start meditating on at least some part of a Psalm that I thought I understood and like I said, I began to study them. I would study the background and the history and the backstory of some of these psalms. I was getting context, which is helpful, and you all know how much I love context. And then one day, I'm getting pretty good at reading the psalms. They are poetic, and so it takes some time to learn how to read them. And then one day, it just, it just hit me. Bam! It, it's kind of like sitting in a high school math class. Uh, whatever it is, trigonometry or calculus or algebra, and you're struggling and you're struggling and you're struggling, and then one day, bam, that formula suddenly makes sense and you know how to do it. That's what it was like for me with the Psalms. It just, I got it, and I began to appreciate them. And what I realized was that every one of these 150 Psalms has something to say about human nature, and specifically, it has something to say about my nature about my foolishness, about my genuine needs, not my felt needs, but my genuine needs. It has something to say about my lack of understanding of who God really is. And, and the Psalms started to connect with me at an emotional and a heart level that I had never experienced before with any written material in my life. Uh, here's how the Old Testament scholar J.A. Motyer says it. Let me, it's a longer quote, and we're going to have it on the screen for you, but let me read it to you. What was it like to be a member of the Old Testament church? What did they believe? What were their challenges and sufferings, their joy? What was their experience of God personally and corporately? Did, they, did their worship make them happy, or was it a burden were they strangers to us in another age or our brothers and sisters of long ago? As we look through the window of the Psalms, we discover that here indeed is the same God now disclosed to us today in Christ. And here are people of the same nature as ourselves facing the same kind of life and trouble and celebrations and heartbreaks that we face. And we find 
that the same God for them as for us enhances their joys and bears their burdens. So another famous Old Testament scholar, a guy named Herman Gunkel, and this is a century ago now, he was one of the first to propose that we can sort of categorize the Psalms, which, is, which makes it helpful to understand them. So there's all these different categories of Psalms that you can sort of fit each Psalm into. The biggest category is what we would call the lament Psalms or the Psalms of complaint. Uh, the, the, the psalms that are grieving and mourning, the psalms that are even complaining against God, there's probably half of the psalms are in that lament uh, category. Then there are psalms of confidence. Now, Psalm 23 is going to be a psalm of confidence. That's what we're going to be looking at the next five weeks. There are psalms of thanksgiving, just giving thanks and, and having gratitude for who God is and what he does for us. There are psalms of enthronement, a psalm of enthronement simply recognizes God's rightful place. And then there are royal psalms. Royal psalms are psalms where we stand in awe of God's kingship. There are also psalms of wisdom. How many of us finally pray in the wake of our foolishness? We need to learn how to pray before we engage in foolishness. There are psalms of wisdom. And then there are psalms of pilgrimage. Psalms that recognize that we're on a journey in, in our relationship with God, that we are works in progress, and we need prayers for that. The Psalms remind us that God is always there, both in darkness and in joy, in both the valley and on the mountaintop. The Psalms always learn from the past and then look forward in hope. And the Psalms express the reality that you and I are in constant battle, and that battle is defined by the, the dichotomy of fear and trust. And Psalm 23 is a pretty good picture of all of this. So Psalm 23, um, it's the most iconic psalm. I think even people who have never been to church have heard Psalm 23 before. It's very similar in the New Testament to the Lord's Prayer. We should memorize Psalm 23, and it's well-known uh, in the Old Testament the way the Lord's Prayer is known in the, uh, the New Testament. And King David wrote Psalm 23. In fact, King David wrote uh, the most of the 150 Psalms, by some counts about half of the 150 Psalms, maybe even more. And in Psalm 23, it's very short, but we see that God plays two parts for us. Number one, he is our shepherd. God is our shepherd. That's verses one through four. And then in verses 5 and 6, we, we see that God then becomes our host for our eternal banquet. And so we're going to look at both of those uh, parts as well. The first four weeks, we're going to look at God as shepherd. The first four verses, the last week, the fifth week, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, God is our hope. And like I said, Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence. It's beautiful and poetic, and it's to the point. So today, we're just going to look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Other translations say, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. Uh, same idea, and we'll get to that at the very end. But this idea of shepherd, the shepherd motif is so common in the Bible, as is the sheep motif. We're going to mention this many times during this series, the shepherd motif, the sheep motif. Yahweh is the shepherd of his flock, Israel. Jesus 
we find in John chapter 10 of the New Testament is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of us today. King David, who wrote this psalm, so it's good that he wrote it, was literally a shepherd. He knew everything about being a shepherd, and he was a good shepherd. So he understands the symbolism here. And what we need to remember is all of us, we are all God's sheep. And God is the shepherd, loves, for, loves us, and cares for us. So do not miss the imagery and the symbolism of this shepherd idea. And this language that David uses in this psalm, like I said, very common in the Bible, including for both Israel and in the New Testament and for the church today, this language describes and points to what I would call the double front power and responsibility of God to his people. There's power and there's responsibility that God has for his people. And it's expressed this way. God has all authority and he gives all care. Uh, God reigns and he serves. God leads and he provides. God challenges and he protects. God disciplines and teaches and he encourages and affirms. And so one of the best things that I think we can do, one of the best exercises we can do is to um, take this idea of shepherds and sheep and look at the characteristics of each because the symbolism is is just so strong here. And to understand that symbolism and to understand those characteristics as they apply to us and they apply to God is really helpful here. So we're going to do the sheep first. And you're going to see some of this um, on the screen, which will help you, you note takers, because kind of a long list for each. So here you go. Sheep, first and foremost, sheep are skittish. They're skittish. Sheep and people are so easily panicked. I mean, how easily do we get panicked by things? Very easily. It's like any little thing, any little change panics us. Now, I, I know that the illustration I'm going to give you is not a sheep nor a person, but a dog. There's a picture, uh, Caleb will put up a picture of our dog, our young dog, a little over a year old. His name is Kevin. Kind of looks like a sheep with all that hair. Um, but Kevin is, is kind of a, an example of this. Last week, Reagan brought into our backyard a bicycle. And she just leaned it against the wall in the backyard. It's a bicycle, for crying out loud. And Kevin absolutely lost it. He freaked out. He refused to go outside for anything, which became a problem, obviously. He wouldn't go outside to eat. Even inside, when we fed him, he would take a bite of food, and then he would look, look around, worried that the bicycle was going to get him. Kevin is very skittish about bicycles. It, I can't even describe to you how awful this was. We had to get the bike out of there. Kevin would not go in the backyard. We tried dragging him back there. He, he was violently against going in the backyard. Very skittish. Bicycles, okay? We have our own bicycles in our life. Sheep have their own bicycles. Very skittish. So sheep are skittish. Here's the second thing. Sheep get agitated when their routine gets interrupted. Sheep get agitated when their routine gets interrupted. Um, can we say uh, shelter in place? Can we say lockdown? Can we say pandemic? People got agitated by this. 
Here's a third one. Sheep are way more defenseless and vulnerable than they seem to understand. They're not even aware of how defenseless and vulnerable they are. Here's another way to put it. Sheep have very little self-awareness. Hello, people. Here's the next one. Sheep are not especially bright. And that's actually a nice way of saying it. You should read some of the commentaries, uh, other words that are used. They're not especially bright. Uh, One scholar uh, wrote that sheep are foolish. So that's a picture of the book of Proverbs, trying to push us away from foolishness and into wisdom. Another wrote that sheep are gullible. Well, in the New Testament, we hear all about the danger of false teachers because people are very gullible. God desires that his sheep pursue wisdom. And we were were reminded that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the fear of the Lord, in other words, the awe and the respect and the love for the Lord, is the beginning of all wisdom, discernment, and insight. So sheep are not especially bright, and we should be pushed away from that. We should be pushed away from foolishness and from gullibility. Here's the next one. Sheep are demanding. It's as though sheep are fickle customers and consumers. Now, here's a big one. You've probably heard this one before. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep insist on going their own way. That's why a shepherd has to have the staff to to keep kind of pushing the sheep back to the right path. We'll talk talk, um, more about the staff and and that path of righteousness in the coming weeks. But but sheep are very stubborn. They insist on going their own way. And I'm, I'm really glad people aren't like that. That's helpful. Here you go. Sheep like to stray, but they rarely realize that they're straying. They are, le- they are easily led astray, very easily led astray. Does that sound familiar? Here's one. Sheep are vulnerable to mob psychology. Sheep are vulnerable to mob psychology. All it takes is for one or two sheep to start running a certain way, and all the other sheep start running in the same direction, though they know not why. And, and, here you go. Enemies love to stalk sheep because they're so easy. Because they're not that bright, because they're gullible, because they're stubborn, because they like to stray. Enemies love to stalk them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter reminds us, be alert, be alert, sober-minded, and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And finally, last characteristic of a sheep Uh, According to one agricultural guru, sheep need more care than any other livestock. Sheep are needy. So that was fun, wasn't it? Y'all feeling real good now? That was fun. Here you go. Have you ever heard the term sheeple? We are sheeple. Now you know where that term comes from. Okay. So now let's talk about the characteristics of the shepherd. This helps us understand why we need a good shepherd and why God is a good shepherd. Shepherd. So, first thing, shepherds make sure that the flock gets fed. And here's the thing the shepherds feed the sheep the food that they need, not necessarily the food that they want. Kind of like a parent with a two year old. If the two year old was in charge of of their diet, they're going to eat, um, you know, sugary cereal, donuts, and ice cream, and Pepsi or Coke, if you're a Coke person, all day long. And we know that we need to feed the two-year-old healthier food. It's the same in church. We proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God. That's 
the food that, that the congregations need, that Christians need to hear. Shepherds are the same way. God is the same way. He feeds us, but he feeds us what we need, not what we want. Here's the second thing. Shepherds protect the flock from wolves and other predators. So how often in scripture are false teachers described as wolves? Well, often, because they are wolves. And sheep need to protect, uh, I'm sorry, the shepherds need to protect the sheep from these, these wolves. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus is watching what the people are going through and surveying uh, what kind of leadership they have there. And, and he looks around at the people and it says that he had compassion on them because they were lost and they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no one caring for them, no one loving for them, no one feeding them properly. And he had great compassion for them for that reason. Here's the third thing. Shepherds understand the need for and the security offered by boundaries. If you want to see more on that, which we will in a few minutes, look at John chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Here's the fourth thing. Shepherds love the sheep and they know how to relate to them. Fifth thing. Shepherds always take the, step, the first step toward danger and unpleasantness, thus always taking the first shot, as it were, for the sheep. So they stand between trouble and the sheep. Here's the next one. Shepherds live a life of sacrifice. Again, look at John chapter 10. On at least three different occasions, some people would argue five occasions, Jesus proclaims that he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. And finally, the last characteristic, shepherds rebuke, discipline, and correct the sheep. And they have to do that all the time because they're sheep. Now, thinking a, a bit about how this little study here might affect us, this little exercise. Maybe we feel a little downcast about being the sheep. Well, I would argue no worries because God is our shepherd. That's the beauty of this. God is our shepherd. He's our shepherd who feeds us and dies for us, and that's good news. But if you want to know when we become really, really bad sheep, here's when we become terrible sheep. It's when we anoint shepherds other than Christ in our lives. And all of us do this at one point or another in our lives. Some of us have come from other shepherds to Jesus, but even as Christians, we tend to, we tend to allow other shepherds, false shepherds into our lives. They could be political shepherds. Some of you, I know, you have political shepherds and you think that those political shepherds are feeding you what you need. Jesus feeds you what you need. There are entertainment shepherds. All of us can admit to that. Some of us have business shepherds. Now, here you go. It's really good to have business networks and business mentors and people that you look up to and people who can help train you and people who give you wisdom in the marketplace. But to make them a shepherd, to think that they're going to give you everything that you need, that's dangerous. We have athletic shepherds. We have journalism shepherds and, and on and on and on. This is the best point I can come up with for reading John chapter 10, where Jesus does say, I am the good shepherd. So let me just read these 18 verses and listen to these words of the good shepherd. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. There's that need for boundaries. We have to have boundaries. If somebody's climbing over your back wall at home, that's a problem, right? You're not expecting uh, people that you trust and love and that you're in relationship to just hop over the back wall. They're going to come in through the front door. Verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, the shepherd goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The shepherd is always between the sheep and trouble. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I hope we do understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus continues in verse 7 and says to them, Truly, truly... I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, Jesus says, he will be saved and he will go out. He will go in and out and find pasture. He'll find shalom. He'll find life. He'll find salvation. He will find pasture. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and carries, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he exemplifies in that passage all of those characteristics of being the good shepherd. And that's why we, we need to give our lives to him as the good shepherd. He'll take care of us. He'll take care of us. Now, here's the last thing. The Lord is my shepherd. We spent all of our time on that. I shall not want. I shall lack nothing. So why does it follow that the psalmist would say, because I have a good shepherd, I'm, I, I'm not going to lack anything? Very simply, it's a statement of contentment. It's a statement of contentment. With God as our shepherd, there is no genuine need that is unfulfilled. And we need to understand there's a difference between needs and wants and how easy it is for our heart to convince us that something we want is really something that we desperately need. That's what's called a felt need. But God comes to us through Jesus Christ and fills us with the Holy Spirit and gives us exactly what we need, what we genuinely need. Our problem is, is that our fallen, corrupt, sinful heart is a wanting machine. We want, 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 want. I'm reminded of Larry Wright, who was um, Tom Schrader's spiritual father and, and mentor for years. Um, Tom used to say, yeah, 
Our heart is a wanting machine. It's, it's a wanter. But what God does is when he comes into our life and he fills us with the spirit and the power of the resurrected Christ, he changes our wanter. He helps our wanter understand what is truly a genuine need and how God fills those things. And then there are wants. And most importantly, God fills that essential need, that most essential need, which is salvation. And that's fulfilled by the good shepherd, Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And I want to close by just simply saying this. This is, this is a call out to everybody. This is maybe an action step. If God is the shepherd, then you and I are either his sheep or we are goats or wolves. We're either sheep or we're goats or wolves. Which one are you? It's a legitimate question. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we go through this series on Psalm 23, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the incredible layers that this psalm has for us, to, for understanding who you are and who we are, our need for you, and that you love us and care for us. Help us to do that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Redemption Arcadia. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus, and we'll see you next week.